unexplained bangs and thumps in the middle of the night, doors opening and closing of their own accord, objects thrown through the air, furniture moving about without rhyme or reason. These may be signs of the mysterious phenomenon known as the poltergeist. This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to the Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. The mischievous and sometimes dangerous poltergeist, a German word meaning noisy or boisterous ghost, is unusual among the various forms of paranormal phenomena which we tend to ascribe to ghosts in that the perpetrator is never seen. However, its dramatic manifestations leave no doubt as to its presence. A retired deputy sheriff in my hometown of Nevada City, California, related to me the details of an incident which he himself witnessed concerning a stately Victorian home dating back to the town's California gold rush beginnings, a home which belonged to a family who regularly left the house during the winter months to spend those months living in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was a cold night in January or February, not all that long ago, when the alarm went off in their securely locked and unoccupied house. When the police arrived, they saw that a pair of French doors off the second-floor bedroom were standing wide open. As the owners of the house had left a set of keys with the police, the officers were able to enter and thoroughly search the house. When they had assured themselves that no one was in the house, the police closed and secured the French doors, locked up the house, and returned to the police station. Forty-five minutes to an hour later, the alarm went off again, and again the police made their way back to the house. Again the French doors were standing wide open, and again the police made their way to the bedroom. One of the officers then noticed a man's belt lying on the bed and decided that he would tie the handles of the door together with the belt. This being done, the police again locked up the house and left. Forty-five minutes to an hour later, the alarm went off for a third time, and for a third time, the police made their way back to the house. For the third time, the French doors were standing wide open. When they entered the bedroom, the belt was lying back on the bed where they had initially found it. Only a few miles away, in the town of Grass Valley, California, the Holbrook Hotel, dating back to the year 1855, has long been the scene of formidable poltergeist activity. In the Holbrook's kitchen, culinary utensils have been known to swing back and forth on their racks, sometimes even rising high off their hooks, floating in midair, and the water taps in both the kitchen and the ladies' room have been repeatedly turned on full blast 
as if by unseen hands. The vintage elevator has often been known to move from floor to floor late at night when all of the hotel's guests are fast asleep, its door opening to reveal no one inside. A picture and a heavy mirror have reportedly floated free from the hooks by which they had been suspended. Heavy pieces of furniture have thrown themselves into a pile blocking a staircase landing. Lights and televisions have been known to turn on and off by themselves. Curtains have been known to fly out from the wall, wrapping themselves around an unsuspecting guest, while other guests, careful to have securely locked their door before leaving their room, have been startled upon their return to find the door standing wide open. And late at night, the doorknob in a particular room has been known to turn back and forth as the door itself shakes violently. And then there was the evening the entire hotel appeared to be under assault as a violent pounding was heard on each of the Holbrook's windows, an ominous rapping which began at the front entrance and then raced round the entire building. Although hotel staff rushed out to apprehend whoever might be perpetrating a prank, no flesh-and-blood prankster was ever discovered. Some parapsychologists suggest that such events are due not to ghosts at all, but instead to unconscious and uncontrollable psychokinetic energy flowing from an adolescent experiencing a period of extreme emotional stress. But such a theory could hardly account for a hotel staffed entirely by adults or in a securely locked and unoccupied house. An extremely striking example of poltergeist activity was presented in a paper to the Society for Psychical Research by Professor W. Barrett, a fellow of the Royal Society, regarding a house in Court Street, Inniscorthy, Ireland, where, in 1910, a man named Redmond and his wife lived and supplemented their income by taking in boarders. Three young men, John Randall, George Sinnott, and another boy identified only as Richard, who slept in a large room containing two beds situated on the second floor above the kitchen. It was on the night of Thursday, July 7th, that began what turned out to be a three-week-long ordeal which would result in Randall losing ten and a half pounds in weight. All seemed normal that night, until, without warning, Randall, having been snug in bed, felt the bedclothes being pulled away. Thinking that his roommates were indulging in a prank, he shouted at them to stop. When his companions pled innocence and a match was struck, the bedclothes were found to be at the window, and it was discovered that the other bed which was so large that it normally took two persons to move, had moved from its normal position. The bed was repositioned and the bedclothes retrieved, 
but once the lights were blown out, as Randall was to later report in a signed statement, it wasn't long until we heard hammering in the room, tap-tap-tap-like. This lasted for a few minutes, getting quicker and quicker. When it got very quick, their beds started to move across the room. We then struck a match and got the lamp. We searched the room thoroughly and could find nobody. Nobody had come in the door. We called the man of the house, Mr. Redmond, and he came into the room, saw the bed, and told us to push it back and get into bed. He thought all the time one of us was playing the trick on the other. I said I wouldn't stay in the other bed by myself, so I got in with the others. We put out the light again, and it had only been a couple of minutes when the bed ran out on the floor with the three of us. Richard struck a match again, and this time we all got up and put on our clothes. We had got a terrible fright and couldn't stick it any longer. We told the man of the house we would sit up in the room till daylight. During the time we were sitting in the room, we could hear footsteps leaving the kitchen and coming up the stairs. It would stop on the landing outside the door and wouldn't come into the room. The footsteps and noises continued through the house until daybreak. Although the footsteps and tapping sounds continued throughout the following night, nothing else occurred. On the night of Monday, July 11th, the largest bed, now occupied by all three men, again rolled out from its normal position by the window and by the light of a lamp, which they kept burning throughout the night, the terrified men saw a chair dance out into the middle of the room. On Thursday, July 14th, not only were the events of Monday night repeated, but one of the men found himself rudely thrown out of the bed. On each successive night in which they slept in the room, such events continued unabated. On Friday, the 29th of July, Randall reports, the bed turned up on one side and threw us out on the floor, and before we were thrown out, the pillow was taken from under my head three times. When the bed rose up, it fell back without making any noise. This bed was so heavy, it took both the woman and the girl to pull it out from the wall without anybody in it and there were only three casters on it. The men tried sleeping in the other bed, but it did them no good. It kept very bad for the next few nights, Randall stated, so Mr. Murphy from the Guardian office, the local police, and another man named Devereux came and stopped in the room one night. By now, one of the lodgers, Richard, had given up, and only two men remained, one sleeping in each of the two beds. In a signed statement, Murphy and Devereux recorded how they carefully watched the evening's events from positions along the wall halfway between the two beds from which they could observe the entire room and the actions of both boarders. The night, wrote Murphy, was a clear starlight night. No blind obstructed the view from outside, and one could see the outlines of the beds and their occupants clearly. At about 11.30, 
A tapping was heard close at the foot of Randall's bed. My companion remarked that it appeared to be like the noise of a rat eating at timber. Sinnott replied, You'll soon see the rat it is. The tapping went on slowly at first. Then the speed gradually increased to about a hundred or a hundred and twenty per minute, the noise growing louder. This continued for about five minutes when it stopped suddenly. Randall then spoke. He said, The clothes are slipping off my bed. Look at them slipping off. Good God, they're going off me. Mr. Devereux immediately struck a match which he had ready in his hand. The bedclothes had partly left the boy's bed, having gone diagonally towards the foot, going out at the left corner. And not alone did they seem to be drawn off the bed, but they appeared to be actually going back under the bed, much in the same position one would expect bedclothes to be if a strong breeze were blowing through the room at the time. But then everything was perfectly calm. The two investigators made a careful search for any wires or strings by which a fraud might have been perpetrated, but found nothing. After the bedclothes were returned to his bed and the light was blown out, all was silent for about ten minutes. Then Randall shouted that the bedclothes were beginning to slide off again. The investigators told him to try to hold on to them. Although he tried his best to comply, Randall soon cried out, I'm going, I'm going, I'm gone. Upon striking a match, Randall, holding tight to the bedclothes, was seen to be sliding off the bed. At this point, Sinnott had reached the limit of his endurance. Lying on the bed, violently trembling and soaked with perspiration, he cried, I can't stand it. I can't stay here any longer. The poltergeist must have taken pity upon Sinnott, because after the investigators persuaded him to return to his bed, although more rapping was heard from another part of the room, eventually peace reigned for the remainder of the night. No normal explanation was ever discovered for the ghostly phenomena, and Murphy stated in his report, Randall could not reach that part of the floor from which the rapping came on any occasion without attracting my attention and that of my comrade. While I had long been of the opinion that what is termed a poltergeist is more often than not due to activity produced by what we traditionally think of as a ghost, I have recently begun to entertain the highly controversial possibility that at least in some cases there may be a much more intriguing explanation. In Ireland, poltergeist activity is often blamed on fairies, retaliating against those who have built their houses upon paths said to be used by the fairies or upon those curious earthen mounds seen throughout Ireland and known as raths or fairy forts in which the fairy folk are believed to dwell. In St. John D. Seymour and Harry L. Nelligan's 1914 classic collection True Irish Ghost Stories, 
the authors report the following incident said to have occurred in Port Arlington, Ireland. A man near that town had saved 500 pounds and was determined to build a house with the money. He fixed on a certain spot and began to build, much against the advice of his friends who said he was on a ferry path and would bring him ill luck. Soon the house was finished and the owner moved in, but on the very first night his troubles began, for some unseen hand threw the furniture about and broke it while the man himself was injured. Being unwilling to lose the value of his money, he tried to make the best of things. But night after night, disturbances continued, and life in the house was impossible. The owner chose the better part of valor and left. No tenant has been found since, and the house stands empty, a silent testimony to the power of the poltergeist. As further evidence, Seymour and Nelligan present the following correspondence from a resident of County Wexford, Ireland, regarding a man identified only as Mr. M., who, previous to the events to be described, lived comfortably with his large family in a town in County Wexford. Some twenty years ago, the correspondent writes, Mr. M., through the death of a relative, fell in for a legacy of about a hundred pounds. As he was already in rather prosperous circumstances, and as his old thatched dwelling house was not large enough to accommodate his increasing family, he resolved to spend the money in building a new one. Not long afterwards, building operations commenced. In about a year, he had a fine slated cottage or small farmhouse, erected and ready for occupation. He purchased some new furniture at the nearest town, and on a certain day he removed all the furniture which the old house contained into the new one, and in the evening the family found themselves installed in the latter for good, as they thought. They all retired to rest at their usual hour, Scarcely were they snugly settled in bed when they heard peculiar noises inside the house. As time passed, the din became terrible. There was shuffling of feet, slamming of doors, pulling about of furniture, and so forth. The man of the house got up to explore, but he could see nothing. Neither was anything disturbed. The door was securely locked as he had left it. After a thorough investigation in which his wife assisted, he had to own that he could find no clue as to the cause of the disturbance. The couple went to bed again, and almost immediately the racket recommenced and continued more or less till dawn. The inmates were puzzled and frightened, but determined to try whether the noise would be repeated the next night before telling their neighbors what had happened. But the pandemonium experienced the first night of their occupation was as nothing compared with what they had to endure the second night and for several succeeding nights. Sleep was impossible, and finally Mr. M. and the family in terror abandoned their new home and retook possession of their old one. That is the state of things to this day. The old house has been repaired and is tenanted. 
The new house, a few perches off, facing the public road, is used as a storehouse. The writer has seen it scores of times, and its story is well known all over the countryside. Mr. M. is disinclined to discuss the matter or to answer questions, but it is said he made several subsequent attempts to occupy the house, but always failed to stand his ground when night came with its usual rowdy disturbances. It is said that when building operations were about to begin, a little man of bizarre appearance accosted Mr. M. and exhorted him to build on a different site, otherwise the consequences would be unpleasant for him and his while the local peasantry alleged that the house was built across a ferry pathway between two rafts, and that this was the cause of the trouble. It is quite true that there are two large rafts in the vicinity, and the haunted house is directly in a bee-line between them. For myself, I offer no explanation, but I guarantee the substantial accuracy of what I have stated above. This is Mark Lyon, inviting you to join me on the first day of every month as we explore more true tales from the Other Realm. The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon.